Welcome to Office Hours, a social science podcast produced at the University of Minnesota, featuring conversations with prominent scholars, researchers, and other movers and shakers in the social world. In this episode of Office Hours, we speak with Professor Joel Best of the Sociology and Criminal Justice Department at the University of Delaware. Dr. Best's research focuses on deviance and social problems. His current research concerns awards, prizes, and honors in American culture. He's written many books, some of which include Damned Lies and Statistics, Flavor of the Month, Why Smart People Fall for Fads, Everyone's a Winner, Life in Our Congratulatory Culture, and The Stupidity Epidemic, Worrying About Students, Schools, and America's Future. This week, however, we talked to Joel about his newest project, which is an updated version of his Social Problems textbook, which is published by Norton. Welcome to our podcast. Thank you very much for agreeing to participate. Mm, of course. And uh, let's just start out by by talking about how this, this new book of yours came to be. I was reading through the front end of it, and, and you say in the acknowledgments that you've been asked by publishers to do a book on social problems before, um, but what did you say to them, and what changed? Well, starting around 1990, I had uh, pretty much every textbook publisher suggesting that you know they might want me to write a, a social problems book, and I used to have a standard answer, which was that uh, uh, I don't want to write the book that you want to publish, and you don't want to publish the book that I want to write. <laughs> and we would, uh, you know, we'd have a little conversation, and at the end of the conversation, they'd say, "You're right." <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> you know, in in one case, they said, "No, no, no." Uh, uh, write a prospectus, and, and so I wrote the prospectus, and and uh, then they said, "Well, no, this this doesn't look like every other social problems book," and they didn't want to do it. Right, right. And then what happened with Norton? How did this change? Uh, well, um, and I'd actually had the same conversation with uh, 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 the uh, uh, sociology editor at Norton, and then uh, uh, a year or so later, uh, Carl Bake. Bakeman took over as the sociology editor, mm-hmm. and uh, he approached me and said he wanted a social problems book, and I, I did exactly the same <laughs> conversation right. with him, and he said, no, no, I, I really want to do this, uh, and he's uh, been uh, trying to uh, develop a bunch of uh, textbooks uh, for different classes that are rather different than the standard textbooks, and I think that uh, he saw this as a way to make a different kind of social problems book. So uh, we uh, published the first edition in 2008, and the second one has just come out. Right. So a, a big part of this book is is urging students who, who use the textbook to look beyond the objectivist approach. Mm-hmm. So what what is the objectivist approach, and and what do we miss when we take that? Well, yeah, the the objectivist approach is kind of the common sense way that we're used to thinking about social problems. When you pick up a magazine and it has a a story about poverty, uh, you expect that uh, the story is going to uh, tell you how many poor people they are, how much money they have, what their lives are like, etc., etc., etc. And it's we call it objectivist because it treats poverty as though it's an objective condition that's out there in the world that uh, you can go out and you can identify poverty and uh, what I'm trying to do and what I'm trying to get students to do is to 
recognize that that makes a whole set of assumptions. Uh, that is, that people, uh, when they think that, you know, they're, when they're counting how many poor people there are or whatever, uh, they're not thinking through uh, all of the different ways, all the different assumptions that are made about something like poverty. Uh, if you look at, at discussions of poverty, there's a, there are kind of uh, two schools of thought that run through uh, public debates about poverty. There's, there's a school that basically blames poverty on the poor and says that uh, uh, poor people are, you know, they're not working hard enough or, uh, you know, they have a culture of poverty or whatever. And then there's, a, there's another approach that says that, no, poverty is a structural problem in society and that uh, it's not a question of uh, uh, character deficiencies, but rather it's a, a, a limited opportunities that keep some people from uh, trapped in poverty. Now, both of those arguments are are making assumptions about how we ought to think about poverty, about the nature of poverty, and so on. And the very fact that we can see that there are competing visions tells us there's something going on besides simply objective facts. There's a subjective or an interpretive dimension to this. Right. So, and that's the approach that you take in the book. Um, instead of taking topic by topic, problem by problem, you really want to focus on the process by which problems become something that we're concerned about. Exactly. You know, I, I think that the, the traditional social problems class, which has been taught the same way for about a century, is uh, kind of the problem of the week. That is, uh, you might have an opening lecture and an opening chapter in your textbook that says, what is a social problem? And then you're off to the races, and yeah. there's a chapter on poverty, and there's a chapter on racism, and a chapter on crime, and so on and so forth. And what's the problem with that is that uh, that the, the, the substantive chapters, the chapters about particular social problems, never refer back to that opening chapter about what is a social problem, nor do they ever refer to one another. Uh, the chapter on poverty doesn't talk about the chapter on crime, the chapter on crime doesn't talk about the chapter on race, and, and so on. And, and so it's kind of like going to the circus sideshow, and uh, you, know, you, you, you go to the first booth and there's the, uh, the bearded lady, and you go to the second <laughs> booth and there's the fat boy, you know, and, and, and so on. And you have this 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 set of objects that you look at and none of them has anything to do with the other right. and what i'm trying to say is look ask yourself what it is that social problems have in common mm -hmm. and you know think about that that those chapters in that textbook if there could easily be in some books there's a chapter on suicide uh... and in the same book there might be a chapter on globalization well in what sense is suicide like globalization? I mean, we think of, of suicide as being uh, something that, you know, affects troubled individuals. Uh, globalization is something that, you know, uh, involves uh, planetary relationships. How are they part of this, uh, examples of the same thing? And what I'm, what, you know, you, when, you, when you start asking that question, you realize that they really only have one thing in common, and that is that we think about them both as social problems. Mm -hmm. So then the question becomes, how yeah. do we think about things as social problems? How do we come to recognize some things as social problems? And inherent in that approach is, 
is the idea of social constructionism, right. which can be something that is kind of difficult to teach. So how do you how do you approach that definition of social constructionism and, and infuse it into your approach? Sure, I I think that um, uh, you know the first thing that I do is I try and point out to students that you can't. Uh, think without using words. Uh, we're, we're verbal beings. And the words come from somebody else. Everything that you know about the world, everything you know about, you know, what is a mother, what is food, etc., etc., those are all products of a, a social process of learning. That is, you, you, you know, you, you teach a small child, you can eat this you can't eat that, and right. so on and so forth. So, th- so our definition of what is food is, is a product of, of, of that, and our definition of everything else. And an example that I really like to use is uh, uh, the debate over whether Pluto is a planet. Uh, you know, there, yeah. there, you know yeah. used, when I was in school, there were nine planets, and kids that are going through school today learn that there are eight major planets, and Pluto is a minor planet, or, you know, it, it's in some other category. And, and, uh, how did Pluto get demoted? Now, it's not that that uh, we, you know, it's it's not that we don't know that Pluto is out there. I mean, you know, everybody agrees that Pluto's out there. They can tell you how big it is. They can tell you what it's made of. They can tell you how much it weighs. But it's a question of should it be classified as a uh, planet or not? Right. Okay, and that's a process, you know, where people sit around and talk. The International Astronomical Union had a debate and they finally reclassified Pluto. They said, no, Pluto isn't enough like the other planets to be a planet. Okay, now when I was taking my social problems class, you know, uh, long, long ago when Pluto was still being formed, uh, <laughs> the, um, uh, the uh, uh, textbook mentioned nothing about sexism. Or, or the pro- you know, women appeared in my social problems class in a couple of tables, which would say men have these kinds of, uh, are most likely to have these kinds of mental disorders, and women are most likely to have these kinds of things. But there was no discussion of women's place in society. Today, if you look at uh, uh, the textbooks that are out there for social problems, they'll all include a chapter on sexism. So. It's, it's, you know, that's an example. It's very much like what happened to Pluto. Uh, you know, ev- you know uh, back when I was in school, sexism, and it's not that we did, lived in a world of perfect gender harmony, but sexism wasn't, was, there wasn't a term for that. Yeah. Uh, you know, it, it, was, it wasn't seen as problematic. Mm-hmm. And, you know, so that, you know, all social problems have histories. We th- start thinking about them as social, pro- as social problems at particular points of time. And that's the process of social construction. You can't mm-hmm. get away from it. And, you know, it's important to understand that social construction is not something that's false or bogus. Social construction is the way that we acquire all knowledge. Everything is socially constructed. Mm-hmm. So poverty and sexism are, are social constructions. Now, that doesn't mean that, you know, th- there aren't some people who don't have very much money, and it doesn't right. mean that, that women aren't discriminated against, but it means that whether we think about it as a problem and what kind of problem we think it is, that's a product of our time and place. Mm-hmm. 
And you talk through the process of this kind of as um, the natural history of social problems. Mm -hmm. So could you maybe just walk through one of the examples you use in the book of of what that natural history is? And and I know you talk a little bit about rhetoric and resources, and I'd be interested to to hear how those work into your example, too. Sure. Well, you know, uh, the the example that I use in the book, but you could use really anything for this. I I use the civil rights movement. And you can think about this as a process that has kind of six stages. And the the book, you know, uh, acts as though there are six stages. And the first stage is that somebody makes claims. That is, uh, there are people, uh, think of Martin Luther King and and, uh, the civil rights demonstrators who are arguing that, segregation is wrong, that uh, the, the human rights, the civil rights of uh, African Americans in the South are, are, uh, uh, aren't being respected, and so on and so forth. So you have all those demonstrations in the, in the early 60s, and, th- and that's a first stage where claims are being made. Uh, a second important stage is that the media has to pick this up. Uh, they have to transmit those claims, because you can imagine that at any given moment there are lots and lots of people out there trying to draw attention to something that they think is a social problem. There, yeah. there are thousands of those claims. And we don't become aware of many of them. And most of the ones that we learn about, we learn about through watching TV or surfing the web or whatever. We, you know, There's some kind of media intervention. And then a third stage is that there's often a, a public reaction to this, where uh, people are starting to change their attitudes. They're they're starting to, you know, they 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 watched the uh, uh, the uh, news coverage of the uh, demonstrators uh, being beaten in Birmingham, and they said, you know, this isn't right. We need to do something about this. A fourth stage is that there's some sort of policy making. Uh, mm-hmm. This isn't necessarily a law, but it could be a law so that uh, one of the, the key outcomes of the uh, civil rights movement was the passage of uh, first the uh, Civil Rights Act of 1964 and then the Voting Rights Act of 1965. And then uh, a sixth stage, or fifth stage is, is what I call social problems work, where this stuff has to be implemented. Uh, you know, it, 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 and, and that turns out to be an interesting process. Mm-hmm. And then there's a sixth stage where people, uh, I call policy outcomes, where people look back and say, well, how's this working? Have we yeah. done too much? Have we not done enough? Et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And at each of these six stages, people are redefining what the social problem is all about. All right? So that this, this process of social construction is ongoing and continual. Now, the way that resources and rhetoric come into this, rhetoric is, is uh, simply the way that uh, uh, we think about persuasion. And all social problems claims are inherently persuasive. That is, they're all intended to convince somebody that this is a problem that we ought to do something about. It. Mm-hmm. And so there are different rules for, uh, or there, 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 there are different patterns for making convincing rhetoric. And, and the rhetoric, again, is going to shift through each of the stages. And then there, there's the matter of resources. Some 
some people have advantages in in pushing their particular constructions of social problems because they're they're located in positions of power or advantage. Uh, uh, you know, um, Martin Luther King became kind of the visible face of the civil rights movement, and people, and it was very easy for him to command uh, media attention. There were other uh, civil rights organizations, uh, uh, the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee, and so on, which had more trouble uh, and were sometimes frustrated that their claims weren't receiving as much coverage as King's claims were receiving. Okay. You know, I I want to focus, if you don't mind, a little bit on that first step because I know you've written widely on the, this claims making process. Mm-hmm. Um, can you talk about it in kind of a general sense, and then maybe you discuss a, a bit about um, what you've written about the claims making process and the research that you've done in that area? Sure, sure. Um, you know, the 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 idea with claims making is. Uh, as I said, that people are trying to explain what's a problem, uh, why we ought to care about it, and so on and so forth. And and um, you know, I've I've been interested in several things. I think that there is a kind of basic three-part recipe for making a social problem in contemporary America, and the three-part recipe is that you start with a terrible example uh, mm-hmm. it's not you know <laughs> it's not a bad example but it's 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 an example that that really gets people to react mo- yeah. Mo- yeah. so that that uh, if you're if you're concerned with child abuse you you tell the story of some very small kid who's terribly beaten perhaps uh, killed okay and that's a that's a uh, you know, it's an emotionally wrenching example. It 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 grabs you. Uh, you're thinking, "Oh my goodness, this is this is awful." The second stage is that you give this problem a name and you say, "This terrible case is an instance of a larger problem. Mm-hmm. It's a case of child abuse." So that now we have a name. All right, and then the third element is that you add a number. And, uh, you know, there's usually some kind of statistic of right. how many children, <laughs> you know, there are this many million cases of child abuse a year. So that, you know, and this, this combination works really well because you, you take this really frightening example, you say this is an instance of a bigger problem and the problem is this big, okay? And you can, if you watch, when a new social problem comes down the pike, and there'll be there'll be one next month if you're paying attention to yep. new. Um, it's remarkable how often you can see those three elements uh, uh, used to give you a sense of what this problem is all about. Mm-hmm. And so I've been very interested um, in in different parts of this. I've been interested in kind of the structure of rhetorical arguments, uh, uh, you know, how our, our uh, claims put together. I've been particularly interested in uh, the way that statistics get used yes. uh, about social problems, and I've written a couple books about that. Mm-hmm. Um, and um, I'm also very interested in the kinds of people uh, that are making claims, and I think that you can you can see claims as being made by by you know most often one of four kinds of folks. You can see social activists, uh, 
you know, uh, people like Martin Luther King Jr., you can see experts. Uh, you know, oftentimes you have uh, scientists or physicians or, or, you know, sociologists or whoever who are saying, I've done research and, you know, this is, this is what I know about this problem. Mm-hmm. Uh, you can also find the media sometimes uh, stepping up. A lot of times a, a terrible news story will cause the media to uh, uh, promote the idea that this isn't just a bad thing that happened. Yeah, it's not it's, a single case. That's right. Mm-hmm. And then, and then uh, a final group that often gets uh, involved in this is various kinds of officials. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, and this this can be presidents or presidential candidates, or it can be uh, uh, you know uh, your local uh, uh, you know uh, uh, assemblyman or, or, mm-hmm. or and and they may. Uh, want to draw attention to this. Yeah. So this this process it has a lot of different aspects to it, and uh, you're right. I've spent a lot of my time uh, working through that, and in fact, about a third of this book, uh, three of the chapters, are are uh, about that first stage in the mm-hmm. process. Something else that you've written that I found really interesting was looking at the other end of this issue and. Um, how uh, how people get attached to a social problem or a fad, and, and what does that tell us about culture and, and our idea of progress when, when people really attach themselves to something new? Yeah, uh, I I wrote a book about fads, and the fads that I was interested in were not the things that people usually talk about—the kind of silly uh, things, uh, uh, you know, hula hoops and and uh, cabbage patch kids and so on. Uh, what I was interested in was the way that fads pass through serious institutions, so that uh, medicine may get caught up in a new a diagnosis or a new treatment. Um, uh, business may uh, uh, have a new business practice. Schools may adopt some new educational policy. And a lot of times, uh, these things are presented as uh, a way that we're going to fix uh, what's wrong. We're going yeah. to make business more profitable or, or uh, uh, medicine more effective or whatever. And uh, it's also the case that a lot of times, uh, a year or so later, these uh, uh, supposedly... Uh, uh, dramatic innovations have been forgotten, and mm-hmm. it, they're fads, just like hula hoops were a fad. Right. So the question then is, um, you know, how is it that we get we get caught up in this? And this is, you're right. It's it's really the kind of the flip side of social problems. It's it's uh, it it seems like you know social problems seem like unhappy things, and fads seem like happy things. Yeah. <laughs> but they are uh, they are both ideas that get uh, thrown out and talked about uh, through a kind of uh, claims-making process. Right. And if you think about it, you know, if you, if you say, why are we so susceptible to this, uh, both to talking about social problems and to, to uh, uh, welcoming fads, the answer is that we uh, live in a particular kind of culture. Uh, mm-hmm. It's a culture that, that fundamentally believes in progress. We mm-hmm. believe that things can get better. In fact, uh, uh, we think they can become perfect. Uh, we talk about... Um, you know, leaving no child left behind and declaring mm-hmm. war on drugs and mm-hmm. so on. Uh, you know, in other words, uh, you know, now not realistically, uh, it probably doesn't matter what kind of school system you have, there are going to be some kids left behind. But, yeah. but, but if we 
talk about it that way, that means that we're we're always looking to make it better. And yeah. maybe block scheduling will make it better, or right. maybe you know a whole language uh, reading instruction, or whatever the the reform is. Mm-hmm. And 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 so there's this this uh, fundamental belief in progress and perfectibility that runs through the culture. The other thing, of course, is that we now live in a society that is organized in ways that makes it very easy to promote different claims. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, we have a lot, very rich networks of communication. Mm-hmm. So people can uh, learn. If somebody has a new idea, they can pass it on to other people, and it's, it's easy to do that. Uh, we have, uh, 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 we have uh, lots of, of uh, uh, media that are, are constantly looking for what's new, I mean, the word news is interesting, right? Yeah, because right. it tells us that, that this is, that's what it's supposed to be. It's supposed to be stuff that you haven't heard before. And so the combination of a culture that imagines that things can get better and a social structure that uh, supports the dissemination of ideas makes it very easy both for social problems, claims, and for fads to circulate. You know, you've written a number of very, very interesting books, and a lot of them at that. Um, I'm just a little curious on, looking back on on your your different projects, what's been a very memorable or maybe one of your favorite projects to work on? Oh, my favorite one's always the next one. (laughs) It it really is. I, you know, I, uh, uh, there have been a couple of times where uh, I, I sort of wrote a book because somebody said, I want you to write a book, but most of the time, I've picked my own topics, and uh, I've been, you know, I pick things that I'm generally interested in, and I'm always having uh, an enormously good time when I'm doing it. Oh, so on that note, what what can we expect uh, next from from you? What's what's the next book? Well, I I'm going on sabbatical. Oh. Uh, I'm, you know, sabbatical is is days away. I'm counting down. Oh, that's exciting! Well, congratulations on that. Thanks. And, and uh, uh, I'm going to I'm going to uh, work on two uh, big projects. Uh, one is one that uh, is is reasonably far along. Uh, a, a colleague of mine, a former uh, PhD student, uh, Katie Bogle, and I are uh, writing about. Uh, uh, contemporary concerns about uh, young people's sexuality, and in particular, uh, we're interested in sex bracelets, rainbow parties, sexting—all topics that that attracted a lot of attention yeah. in recent years. And and um, part of uh, what got a, got us going on this was that um, you know you you hear the sex bracelet story and and you know for those that don't know the sex bracelets are these uh, thin o-rings of soft plastic that kids wear and they come in different colors and in 2003 people started circulating a story that these had sexual meanings and that if somebody uh, tugged on one of your bracelets and broke it you were obliged to perform the sexual act that was associated with that color and you know some of this is you know, what you'd sort of expect in the elementary school playground, you know, kiss and hug. Uh, but a lot of it involves considerably more uh, sexual sophistication than that. Mm-hmm. And, and you know, this is, you know, a patently ridiculous story. It's, it's pretty obviously a contemporary legend. Right. Uh, and so uh, 
the question that that interested me, I, I was looking at this uh, on the internet. I didn't know anything about it. And I heard about it. And I thought, really? And I was I was looking around. And I discovered this stuff was all over the internet. And then I thought, you know, you could, you know. When people have studied rumors or legends in the past, they've always said, well, these things spread. These are stories that, that, that spread across time and space. But we can't trace exactly how they spread. And I thought, I'll bet that with uh, the Internet, it's possible to do a better job. Yeah. And so uh, that was kind of the the centerpiece for that. That was that was the original impulse, and and uh, we've got uh, an, an article that we've written that that is uh, still under review about that. But but uh, when we started looking at this stuff, we realized that this had so many fascinating dimensions. That um, you know, television was in particular was picking up on this story in an odd way, and that uh, uh, the uh, conversations that people were having you know a lot of what's on the web are are discussion threads where people are weighing in about this and there were people who were completely credulous and people who were completely skeptical and how did they interact and so uh, we think that there's going to be an interesting book in that and we're 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 trying to do that uh, hopefully in the next six months or so and then uh, the, the next thing that I want to do is I want to do uh, something on student loans. And I have been Ooh, thinking yeah. about this for a very, very long time. And in fact, I used to tell people, I'm going to, someday I'm going to write a book about student loans. And they would just yawn. And, <laughs> oh, I, clear, really? <laughs> because all of a sudden, there's great panic about student loans. And right. I'm very interested in uh, uh, trying to learn more about that, and in particular to trace how the student loan problem has has changed, so that it starts off as a problem of uh, uh, young people who can't put together the resources they need to go to college and helping them out, and then it becomes a problem of deadbeats. It becomes a problem of uh, where people are worried about uh, students not paying back their loans. Yeah. Uh, it, later, it becomes a problem of people worrying about uh, uh, the heavy debt loads that young people are taking on, yeah. where they leave college and they have, uh, you know, tens of thousands of dollars uh, in in loan debt. And now, you know, most recently, it's becoming a concern where people are thinking, "Holy cow! There's a bubble. Uh, yeah. We have uh, we now have more student loan debt than credit card debt." Mm -hmm. You know that is, uh, you know that may be uh, financially precarious. Mm -hmm. So looking at uh, the way, you know, and all of this is is created by people with with only the best intentions. Yeah. Right? It's yeah. it's a perfect example of hell, the road to hell being paved with good intentions. Right. It is is trying, uh, you know, to to do the right thing and and to help people out, and uh, we are now facing a rather uh, significant mess, and I think that this mess is not uh, completely unlike the mess that we had about the mortgage crisis or the mess that we have with uh, Social Security and Medicare funding and so on and so forth. And, you know, I think that the thinking about how student loans got transformed may be a way of thinking about other bigger problems. Mm -hmm. Well, Joel, thank you so much for sitting down and talking with us today. Um, is the new book out yet, or when can we expect to... Uh... I, 
I just uh, got an email message about half an hour before you called okay. that editor has the book and he's putting some copies in the mail. All right, book in hand. And is it just called Social Problems? Yes. All right, yep. Joel Best. Well, thank you very much for joining us on the podcast today. Oh, thanks a lot. I, uh, I look forward to these new, new projects. <laughs> thank you. All right, take care. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. All right, that's our show. Thanks again for listening. Talk to you soon.